Welcome to Around the Table. Today we further consider how the way of peace applies to additional difficult situations, in this case, abuse of children or the elderly. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye, but rather defending and delivering the afflicted, with the intent of also seeing the perpetrators come to healing. My name is Ron Messner. I'm the elder at the Washington Apostolic Christian Church, and I've also been involved with Apostolic Christian Counseling and Family Services since its start 20 years ago. We recently did two podcasts on the way of peace and how it applies to marriage, and specifically how it applies to abuse in marriage. So today, as a follow-up, we want to discuss some other relationships in which sometimes abuse happens and consider how way of peace applies in those so, Thankfully with me today, Sister Amber Miller and Brother Keila Byer. So I'm going to have them introduce themselves, and they will step into the topic. So my name is Amber Miller, and I currently serve as the Missionary Care Director for Harvest Call. But before that time, I worked at ACCFS as a clinical social worker. And during my, my time at ACCFS, I would often work with young women who were healing from situations of abuse. My name is Kayla Byer, and... I'm a minister at Washington Apostolic Christian Church and work here at ACCFS as a licensed marriage and family therapist. At ACCFS, my area of interest is relationship, and so in that role I work with distressed marriages as well as individuals, healing at times from situations of abuse. And so it's an area that um, certainly of interest and desire of how we can walk alongside individuals in, in this these situations and circumstances. So in the earlier podcast that we did, um, we shared a, a definition, one that Brother Fred Witzig had put together for the way of peace. So I feel like it'd be helpful to reference that again. So I'm just going to read the definition as it was given to us. The way of peace is a path to walk that is based on the character of God is revealed from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. It's a way into and through conflict. It does not seek to merely end a conflict, but to bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing for everyone involved, without exception. It is a path, a way to walk, a way of thinking, a way our heart and our minds and the Spirit of God tells us to react when we're faced with people who try to hurt us physically or emotionally. So we're going to discuss a, a few different topics to apply the way of peace to. We'll be looking specifically today at child abuse, elder abuse, and dealing with sexual assault. I think it would be helpful just to capture some core principles that we know um, should apply in our roles as parents, adult children, supervisors, or people sometimes just in a vulnerable place. So I'm going to ask Caleb and Amber again to pull some of those core principles from the way of peace and reference those before we go into the specific topics. So one of the, the scriptures that I feel like is very relevant here with this topic today is Psalm 82, verses 3 through 4, when God calls upon us to defend the poor and fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted and the needy, and deliver the poor and the needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Mm. And, and so you hear a call like that, um, and, and I think that is applicable to the church today in knowing how do we respond. Um, it is a call to respond. But again, balancing that with um, with wisdom. I think of certainly the role of parents, of being stewards of our children. And Colossians 3.21 comes to mind, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And so as we engage children, 
whether it's in Sunday school, I think this this could apply to other roles, um, where there are children doing in a way that we're managing conflict in a healthy way and not provoking conflict, but rather peace and regulating our emotions in a healthy way. So uh, another verse then that comes to mind too is Romans twelve nineteen. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, I think that verse is one that that is hard to hear, especially for people who have walked through um, childhood abuse or mm-hmm. an assault. Um, because again, there is so much emotional upheaval that comes from that. And as they process through and and work toward healing, there is a lot of anger that can come. And so I think we just need to to acknowledge that, that that is a real a real thing that sometimes there are scriptures that are hard to process and know what that means in light of what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Probably all of us have some tendency to pick and choose scripture to um, defend behavior that's already happened, but the scripture clearly <clears throat> calls us to recognize and intervene when people are being hurt and to intervene when people are misusing scripture, mm-hmm. whether that's with children or with um, taking care of older parents that there isn't scripture which justifies that. There's scripture which points out our responsibility, but the responsibility does not include causing harm. So we look at both child abuse and elder abuse. We see them as having some core commonalities. In both cases, there's a victim. And also in both cases, there's a perpetrator. I think it'll be helpful to discuss some of the dynamics that distinguish child abuse and elder abuse from abuse in marriage, as we talked about in the two previous podcasts. Marriage abuse we would say, I think, is primarily about power and control. Child and elder abuse can be those, but as we see them, it's often about anger and frustration, about lack of um, healthy emotional regulation, about stress being exacerbated by lack of skills in child raising, lack of skills in communication, lack of an outlet. Keelan and Amber, if you have any additional thoughts about definition or perspective. So when we think about child abuse, we can think in a couple general categories. One is where a child is put in a place of of danger in a sense of uh, violence, physical violence, emotional abuse, where they are being constantly berated and um, psychologically abused, um, certainly, and certainly we think of sexual abuse. Um, it also can be in areas of neglect where there's an absence of providing care and support for someone who's vulnerable and in need. And so whether that be uh, providing meals, daily meals, or physical need of shelter, but also in the sense of withholding um, emotionally when we think of silent treatment that goes on and on is a form of neglect, healthy, emotional and in spiritual uh, provision for, for children. Yeah, I appreciate those. Actually, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking something that threatens the safety or security of the person. So certainly not not knowing if their parent's going to be there, not knowing if somebody's mm-hmm. going to assist with something, or not knowing if something bad is going to happen. Even the threat that bad things will happen and not know if it's true. All those threaten our sense of safety and security, which are really core needs for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to look from adult through an adult's eyes, but we have to remember that these are children in places that we need to look through their eyes and what it's like for them, which is really hard for us to do. 
until we, you know, interact with them and consider what would it be like, you know, for that five-year-old, seven-year-old, 12-year-old that speaks to our struggle to connect to their reality. I think one thing, Caleb, is as you're sharing that definition, a reality to remember, too, is that language is so important. And for for kids, sometimes the way that they express is through behavior and through play. And so sometimes they don't mm-hmm. have the words to say, I don't feel safe or I, I don't I don't know what's happening. And so you might just get these reactions. And again, that just continues to build and escalate a situation for parents to get more and more frustrated in that moment. And so um, that can just be a component that can be really difficult to work with. Do either of you think of specific things that you would tell somebody to watch for that could be indicators that somebody's being abused? I mean, we know that if a child is acting too fearful or reacts strongly to touch, any, any other things, both for elderly and for children, that you would say, if you see those, you should be alert or notice if there's anything else going on. What are the unusual statements or behaviors? So I, I think a classic a classic sign would just, again, be marks and bruises and unexplainable things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that is always something that we're told to watch out for, for mm-hmm. those of us that are, are in a mandated reporting role, whether that's someone in the medical field or counselors or teachers. Another thing that I think about, particularly with children, is kind of a reversion in their developmental really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, pieces. So if they've been potty trained for years, for example, starting to wet their pants, or you noticed in language, for example, the way they're communicating, they may revert to earlier stages. And it's not uncommon for children to do that when they feel insecure for a time, but if it's ongoing... It's a pretty good indicator that there's disruption emotionally going on. Oh, that's helpful. Some of the things are a little bit distinct with elderly. You have to be careful because somebody who has who, who's a ways into dementia already sometimes exhibits some signs of fearfulness. But that fearfulness, because they they don't understand anymore what's going to happen. They mm. they don't have a sense of their environment. So we have to be careful not to um, over analyze that. But it is important to notice it, particularly if there's a, a change or it seems unusual. And I think some of the same things, if they flinch or sudden weight loss, I mean, too much mm-hmm. weight loss, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes the person won't eat. It's not always a problem, but noticing that this point we're going to go into roles, our, our responsibilities. So there are lots of different roles. We're talking about these roles as the person who might observe it. So what is what do you do from the role of parent, grandparent, teacher, whoever, if you suspect abuse or if there's some evidence that it's happening? As we think about the, the way of peace, Ron, one of the responsibilities is to provide an environment where the, it nurtures healthy growing of individuals, in this case a child, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And in order to do that, there needs to be boundaries set in place, providing an environment where health and ultimately growth can happen. I think it is also the responsibility of parents, grandparents, um, and this also extends out to to teachers or church leadership, you know, anyone who would have an interaction with with these individuals. It is their responsibility to report to authorities. Again, I think we can be hesitant to do that, or um, what if we're wrong? You know, we want to be wrong, and so we ask ourselves that question, what if I'm wrong? 
Um, but again, going back to Psalm 82, like it is our responsibility to defend and protect the weak and, and there are systems within our our government, within our state that are set up to do that and to investigate in a way that is objective um, and that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate your bringing that up, Amber. And I want to speak to it. And if, if either of you disagree, you should feel free to do that. But <clears throat> I think I can say that our experience here as a counseling center is that state authorities, as they do investigations, they don't break up families just to break them up. They're not overly suspicious of what has happened. And in general, we have had relatively good experiences. And when in child investigation people have come, they've been sensitive to children. They've not set them in difficult places. They haven't broken up families, except if it was necessary that there be separation. Let's move to role of church leadership. So as an elder, I find this one a little more challenging. In marriage, it seems like, of course, we need to step in. But I think one of the things I would say as an elder is these are areas we're often not aware of. The people Mm -hmm. who are aware are the Sunday school teachers or the aunts and uncles or Mm -hmm. the grandparents. And so our role of church leadership is if somebody lets us know that we um, encourage the church to mobilize support systems. Sometimes what's needed is just a little more assistance in that parenting, especially a single parenting role, and to encourage the people who are involved to be willing um, to have the courage to step into the situation. Keelan and Amber, how do we support the perpetrator appropriately? So a couple of things come to mind is, um, and even as you say that, Ron, I guess it, it somewhat depends on the severity of the abuse. If this is a this is a situation where they're in direct harm, that I'm going to intervene probably different than if it's an individual that yes, there's abuse that has occurred, but the perpetrator perhaps has done it a bit out of ignorance, and there isn't this ongoing cycle in pattern. No matter what role we're in, we have to be careful we're not excusing. We, we have to be careful we don't say, well, you know, they just they're, they're, they lost their job and what, whatever those things are. We can't say that. But we do need to assess the mental state of the perpetrator and their willingness to take counsel, their mm-hmm. willingness to accept support, their mm-hmm. willingness to get mm-hmm. training. And it, unless there is distinct harm happening, in which case mm-hmm. there has to be intervention. Mm-hmm. But if it's more that sense that there could be or the situation mm-hmm. that's edgy, to intervene soon with a perpetrator and make a, a good um, assessment of whether additional support could resolve this. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it still shouldn't be reported. Sometimes it needs to. But for the perpetrator's sake, look at what could be offered uh, that could legitimately help them to, to change their role. Mm-hmm. And I think in many cases, education, connecting with appropriate resources and professional help um, and, and understanding what are the triggers that, you know, this abuse plays out and um, how can we set appropriate boundaries is also a way that we can support the perpetrator. In many ways, the church is is set up well to be additional support. Uh, again, there's a lot of home environments where, where they are it. They may be away from any sort of um, extended family or, or not have the resources to come in and and give a respite to parents under stress. And the church um, that we've been blessed with really has a lot of resources. It is just discerning how to best 
use the church and how to bring them into a situation through, again, whether that's education or respite care, again, walking alongside parents under distress. Mm-hmm. You know, when you share that, ever I think about, I know a number of people are involved in programs like the, is it called Safe Home? Mm-hmm. I think, which is not about kids who are being abused. This is about parents who either have identified themselves or somebody else has identified are on the edge because of the stressors that are occurring and somebody can step in. And I, my mm-hmm. observation is we have a number of people from church who do that. I hope that people are just as aware that if it's somebody in the church who's in that situation, that they would ask for help or mm-hmm. we would make it mm-hmm. clear we can step in. There's mm-hmm. there's things we can do to take some of that stress off. You aren't expected to handle just every level of frustration. Safe families. Safe families. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great program, mm-hmm. and, and I, I don't know its success, but just a easy, guilt-free, and legal way to just intervene quickly and get people into a safe environment until it can be resolved. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move a little bit into role of the law because we're, we're stepping into that. And I think, again, we don't want to be defensive, but there is a time that the law has to be involved. And if I think of situations I've known of where the law has said those children can't be in the same home. So that would be a case where the children are abusing each other, uh, perhaps older children abusing younger, sometimes teenage brothers being inappropriate with their younger um, sisters. And sometimes the only way to get that resolved is for the law to say, this has to back up until Mm -hmm. we get this resolved. And so that can feel a little strong for the law to take that stand, but we would say it is the place of the law. Again, in a situation like that, it, it could be terribly hard to be objective and to, as a parent, walk through that um, when you when you love your children both so much. Um, but again, recognize that the safety of one is jeopardized by the other. And so, again, that can be a, a way a third party can intervene in a helpful, helpful way. Yeah, we want to acknowledge this is painful when it, mm. when it comes to that level where parents are needing to protect one and, in a sense, let, let go of supporting the other it's a very difficult place to be in as parents. Mm -hmm. But again, I think kind of tying this back to way of peace, like all of these things that we're talking about, all these roles are ways that are trying to bring about that peace. And they're trying to resolve something, um, something that is, is horrible and um, out of what God would design. And it's trying to, to write that in a way that is appropriate. um, So that, there isn't further violence or escalation. Mm-hmm. Let's move into elder abuse. I just feel a need to clarify. So this is not about abuse of your elder, um, as in church leadership, but abuse that happens to elderly people who are vulnerable and dependent. So this can happen in a, a, a care setting. Sometimes people in an assisted living or nursing home. Uh, those are very difficult places to um, to provide care. But but it also definitely happens at home. If if one of the spouse is still functioning well, and their life is being turned upside down, they feel helpless or even don't know what to do. If their spouse is wandering in the night or doing things which are not safe, and they don't have resources available, they're not ready to move out of the family home. So it clearly happens, maybe a little bit more difficult um, to detect that. So we're going to move in again, as we did the others, into roles. So what's what's the role of the um, the middle-aged person who sees this happening to his parents or sometimes a friend, a couple friend at church who is aware that something's just not right in that relationship. We're seeing responses, which are um, difficult. 
So just what, what thoughts do you have about how do you step in? One of the things I think about here, Ron, is an aspect, I think, of the role of parents, you know, individuals in this situation is knowing where it becomes too much for them. So in other words, knowing when to ask for help. Because in, in certain situations, it does become overwhelming and beyond what we can manage well. And I think an aspect of the role is, is to reach out to the body, to individuals that want to come and support and help and provide care and provide opportunity to get rest or relief and even spiritual insight and wisdom. I appreciate that, Caleb. I think it's a great point of the knowing when to ask for help because that it can be so hard, especially if you are talking about an older couple and and one needs more support than the spouse can give at that stage of life. Mm. It's a horrible spot for kids to be in, to, to have to pull the plug, so to speak, mm-hmm. on parents' independence and putting them in a, in a home or a facility, a assisted living, where some of that is taken away. And yet recognizing the elderly person at that point may view it as you know, that's that's cruel or that's that's not fair. And yet recognizing that is that is an act of love and to actually bring intervention into a situation where where it's not sustainable and it is putting someone at risk. Mm. I, I appreciate it. I would like to also encourage there are skills, um, skills that we wouldn't typically think of that make it easier to interact with somebody who's becoming forgetful. Um, and I've just mentioned a couple, but I would encourage contacting a elder agency or something like that that could give you some ideas some of the mm-hmm. semi-abusive situations happen because our desires to correct them we mm-hmm. don't want to accept that they're losing touch with reality but it's much it's much more healthy to let them ask questions about what they're saying is going on and not try to correct or change those things but entering their reality can be helpful to reduce your stress but also to reduce their stress mm-hmm. it is that sense of accepting you know, where they're at, which is really hard because at times in these situations when abuse happens, it's control, wanting to control someone where they're at. And, and just as you're saying that, Ron, it made me think of accepting that that's where they're at and not, um, which is really hard. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a key factor in elder abuse because it means you have to accept we are not too healthy romantic, caring people mm. living together anymore. We've yeah. moved into a role of a, yeah. a caregiver and a care receiver, and that is extremely difficult to yeah. accept. I think this is true in all states. I guess I'm not sure of it, but I think that um, if you have a concern, somebody either hasn't been seen for a little bit or you wonder what's going on in a home just because it seems unusual, um, you can call the local law enforcement and they will do a wellness check. Sometimes that happens if... Um, but just for whatever reason, whether there's lack of communication or voices raised or things that raise a question. And I believe that they may use others. It doesn't necessarily mean the police are coming to the door, but they're trained to just do an assessment of are things healthy in this environment. They're not the ones who will, they're not going to remove somebody. They're not going to arrest somebody, but they can just do a check. And I think those can be initiated anonymously. Obviously, you have to be careful that that doesn't become a way to carry on a dispute. Um, but they can be done in a discreet way and just get an assessment of, of whether things are healthy in that home. So we, we know that we've overlapped some between child abuse and elder abuse. While they're very different dynamics, the, um, the roles and the need to protect are very much the same. Thanks for listening. 
We appreciate your interest and also welcome your comments. To share your feedback or episode ideas, go to the settings menu in AC Central, select User Feedback, and when the web page opens, click the Feedback on Around the Table link. Around the Table is a production of Onward Media, a communications ministry of the Apostolic Christian Church.